Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What. Today we've got Rory on and he's a commercial helicopter pilot. Hi Rory. Hello there. How are we today? I'm very good indeed, thank you very much. Fantastic. Rory, should we jump straight in? Do you want to tell everyone a bit about what you do? So I am a commercial helicopter pilot. I've only been so since January this year. Um, I was a a studio director, which is basically a sort of mixture between a producer and a sound engineer at BBC Radio 5 Live for a decade before that. Um, And I've wanted to be a helicopter pilot since I was about six years old. And I finally got an opportunity that I couldn't turn down to do an integrated commercial helicopter course, uh, the first that's existed in the UK for about a decade, um, which was advertised in late 2019 and i applied for a place and i managed to get one and here i am now with my commercial helicopter pilot license what a cool story so you know talk to us how did this all come about have you always loved flying you mentioned as a young child you always wanted to be a helicopter pilot but what was it about that space that really sort of excited you well to go the the reason why i've always wanted to be a helicopter pilot is because i grew up on a small remote island in scotland in the group of islands called orkney which are off the northern tip of mainland scotland um it's a fabulous community uh the island that i grew up on is called ouskerry which is also my surname my parents named me after the island because (laughs) there was only our family on it Um, slightly different story but the reason why I go back to that is because there was only five of us on the island my mum and dad and my two younger brothers Um, and there was you know we had a flock of rare breed sheep and that my parents are sheep farmers there was a lighthouse on the island Um, we'd have a few fishing boats would sort of go by the island uh, lots of wildlife but for me by far the most exciting thing that happened was once or maybe twice a year if i was lucky the northern lighthouse board who have responsibility for looking after the lighthouse would arrive by helicopter and it was a bright red bolco 105 i've got a photograph of it here in my office um to remind me of what started all this bright red shiny noisy smelling of jet fuel it can hover it can carry stuff under slung The pilots who get out of it are wearing flight suits and helmets and sunglasses and their gold bars on their shoulders, and they just ooze cool. Mm. And I was absolutely besotted with this thing from day one. I thought, I, you know, I I couldn't believe it. As far as I was concerned, it was magic that something as big and as noisy as this could could do what it could do. And I I was transfixed by it. I watched it for hour after hour after hour, and I was home educated. So my mum was desperately trying to teach me, and she knew that the days the helicopter came, she had to just let me basically bunk off school and go and watch because I wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything other than that. Um, and, you know, fast forward many years later, I, I couldn't join the any of the armed forces because I had a history of asthma on my childhood medical records, um, which at the time was a, a no-no for all three of the armed forces. Um, they also, two of them said I was too tall anyway. I remember the RAF lady on the recruitment line, she, you know, after saying, well, the asthma's a problem anyway, Mr. Ouskerry, she said, how tall are you anyway? And I said, I'm six foot four. And she said, all oh, right, well, you're definitely too big then. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, you wouldn't be able to eject from a fighter jet at six foot four because you'd lose your legs underneath the, the oh control column. 
And I said, well, I, you know, typical smart Alex, 16 year old. I said, well, I don't want to be a fast jet pilot. I want to be a helicopter pilot. You can't eject <laughs> out of those. <laughs> and she said, well, it's up to us to decide, you know, we, we stream the pilots and it's up to us. And that was the end of that. So I, I kind of parked the whole aviation thing. Um, certainly being a, you know, a commercial helicopter pilot, because my parents, as I said, were sheep farmers, there was no way they could afford to pay for me to do it privately. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was lucky. I had a, another passion, which was radio and music and broadcasting and stuff. And I was very fortunate to have had a, an opportunity to get involved in the local BBC radio station in Orkney, which was, you know, it was a small station with a few staff and, you know, very friendly. And they were kind of happy about having a, a teenager knocking about making tea. And mm. I, I stuck with that. And I had a fabulous career in radio for, you know, just over a decade in the end. Um, but I, I, you know, people who are into aviation and love flying will know what I'm talking about when I say it's, it is something that once you're bitten by the bug, it never leaves you. You always look up at the sky when you hear an aircraft, you're always craning your head to see over the fence at airfields and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just loved it. And when I, I moved to Manchester, um, after a, a stint in London at the BBC, and um, there's an airfield, Barton Airfield, uh, Manchester City Airport, which is just up the road from where I lived. Mm. And, you know, by this point, I had a job and I was earning some money and, you know, I had a bit of savings and I'd bought a house and, you know, my wife and I were fairly settled with work and everything. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get my private pilot's license, but I couldn't afford helicopters still. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll learn to fly microlight airplanes um, mm. because it was cheaper. And I thought, well, at least it'll get me a pilot's license and I'll be able to you know, go about and have the, what we call a hundred pound hamburgers, you know, fly to another <laughs> airfield for half an hour, an hour with your mate and have a sandwich and then go back again. And, you know, what have you, you can imagine how much that costs. Um, and I did that and I absolutely loved it. I, you know, if anyone's wanting a start in, in aviation, I'd ur urge them to, to go and get your, your microlite license because it's affordable and brilliant fun. Mm. Um, but then in, summer late summer of 2019 i was actually driving back from orkney again with my wife and she was she was driving and i was sat in the passenger seat scrolling through facebook and i saw this advert for the first commercial um integrated commercial helicopter training course in the uk in a decade there was an opportunity to potentially win a, a scholarship from bristow which is one of the major players you know in the north sea flying guys to oil rigs um, and I thought, well, I, I sort of looked at the the list of things that it required, and it was things like basic GCSEs, a right to live and work in the UK, you know, ability to speak English to a decent standard. And I thought, well, I could probably squeeze my way through this, this <laughs> process, you know, if, if I have a go. So I, I, I said to Lizzie, my wife, I said, what do you think about me applying for this? You know, as a sort of, as a 31-year-old, a last-ditch attempt to live a childhood dream. And she, she said, well go for it you know you might as well put an application in that won't hurt I, I think to be honest she didn't really think I'd get very far yeah. and I didn't really either but it's one of those things that you know if you don't do it you're always going to think what if I had have bothered to put an application in so I, I wrote an application sent it off and long story short it turned out that they had 850 applicants oh my and although I didn't get one of the four sponsored um, Bristow scholarship places I was offered one of the four self-funded places 
So then, of course, I'm in a dilemma. I'm thinking, well, crikey, you know, can I actually afford to do this? Mm. But I've been offered this opportunity and maybe I should do it. So I had a bit of a rummage through my piggy bank and I borrowed a bit of money from my parents and I borrowed a bit from my wife. And I said, yes, um, started it. We moved house because we were living in Manchester. So I, I quit my job moved to Leicestershire um, in the space of a, well, I, I quit my job and then a couple of weeks later left. And in the space of a weekend, we moved to Leicestershire. And on the following Monday, I started this new life, as wow. we now call it. So um, what, what was that whole process of, of going through and doing your, your helicopter training? Did the fact that you'd have your, your micro light sort of license help you? Um, yes and no. It, it, it certainly has helped but it didn't really help to begin with. In some ways, I think it was a hindrance for the first few lessons on the helicopter. Anyone who, who's listening to this is, who's had a go at flying either an aeroplane or a helicopter will know that it's not you know, an immediately easy thing to do, particularly helicopters. Um, and you know, it takes a, a few hours for you to kind of get used to being in a cockpit and used to being in that environment and start to kind of understand how it all works and get your head around it a little bit. And I thought, that because I'd got 140 odd hours flying airplanes by that point that, you know, I knew helicopters were completely different, but I thought maybe I'll have a bit of a leg up here. Mm. Um, but the helicopter is just such a different beast to an airplane. Um, you know, they kind of don't really want to fly. You have to sort of manhandle them into the sky <laughs> as it were, whereas an airplane's just desperate to go. Um, and, you know, I was frustrated for the first few hours thinking I should be better at this. I should be able to hover and I should be able to manage this because I can fly an airplane, you know, vaguely competently. Um, but it took some time. Eventually it starts to click and, and I start to kind of to get it and, and it all started to come together. And it was at that point that the experience in the airplane really came into its own because I already had a license to use the radio. I was confident on the radio. I you know, I was fairly competent with navigating and map reading. I knew about how traffic patterns at airfields work and how to do overhead joins and, you know, how to kind of integrate with other aeroplanes because I had been an aeroplane pilot. So I kind of knew what they did and what their issues and, and expectations were. And, and I was used to being in the sky in a cockpit. You know, I didn't have air sickness or any of that sort of stuff. So it did really come into its own. It was it was tremendously helpful eventually. But to begin with, you know, those first sort of five or six hours, I was like, I just, you know, there must be something wrong with this helicopter. I don't <laughs> understand why I can't make it do what the instructor can make it do, you know? Yeah. So you mentioned this has been one of the first courses to sort of turn up in the UK for for 10 years. So you know, with a lot of the jobs that we talk about and careers, there's a pretty defined set route. Usually, you know, you go to university, you get a degree in a similar sort of area and then progress into a career. How does it work with becoming a helicopter pilot? Are there, is it usually a private sort of self-funded route or are there courses you can go on? Um, well, it's a very good question because the, the real short answer to that is there's loads and loads of different ways that you can end up in a you know in a career as a helicopter pilot and there's not really a right or wrong way of doing it there are just multiple sort of tentacles to it and you kind of find your own way based on you know what you can do and what's available to you um 
the, the kind of most obvious, most common ways of doing it are either to go through the military. So as I tried to do as a 16 year old, join the military, get them to pay for it, get loads of experience flying around in, in really cool military aircraft. And then eventually at some point you'll leave the armed forces and, um, you know, there's a little bit of sort of retraining to kind of convert your license from a military one to a civilian one. But obviously all the hours that you've logged on, you know, military helicopters will count towards your experience as a pilot commercially. So that's that's something that is quite common. The other route is to do what I've done, and that's to pay for it privately. And if you're going to do that, there's effectively two sub channels of that. One is the modular route where you start off by getting a private pilot's license and then you build some hours and some experience and then you do a commercial course so that you you can sort of upgrade your private pilot's license to a, a CPL, a commercial pilot license, and then you build some more hours and then then you kind of decide what to do next. You You could, in theory, get a job at that point because that's where I am now. Um, although most people don't really want to hire somebody um, to fly them around in their expensive multi-million pound helicopter when somebody is, as I am, still wet behind the ears and straight out of flight school. So what people normally do is they then either get a job as a co-pilot on an operation like you know North Sea Oil um, or in sometimes in um, helicopter emergency medical service or HEMS as we call it, uh, which is basically air, what most people see as air ambulance. Um, so they hire co-pilots who've got limited experience because they're sat next to a very experienced captain who kind of shows them the ropes and they, they gain hours that way. Um, so those are, so that that's the, the modular route. The integrated route is, is in many ways very similar. It's still you paying for it privately, but instead of getting a private pilot's license and then doing some hour building and then doing the CPL course, you basically pile it all into one thing. So you just do the commercial exams. You don't have to do the private pilot license ones. And you sort of fast track your way to a CPL without getting a ppl because obviously once you've got a cpl that's the next level up so you don't need a ppl because you, you've already got a sort of upper license level so it's a it, it's basically it's it's horses for courses either way works great many people have been successful with either 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 way of doing it the integrated system is much more common in in, a, in the airline industry in terms of getting people to quickly to a commercial license so they can join a, an airline like easyjet or ryanair or something like that um but it's less common in helicopters and as i say it, it hasn't been a thing in the uk for about 10 years until the company that trained me started their course so that's that's really how you you get a license either military or privately and then once you've got a license one way or the other um you need experience and that's obviously where the military guys who've come out into the commercial world have a bit of a leg up on us because they've already already scored a lot of experience flying you know military helicopters whether those are apaches or chinooks or pumas or whatever um and in my case my plan is to do a flight instructor course um next year in january um which means that then i'll be teaching other people to fly which i know sounds a bit mad when i've only just learned myself but having just been through the process of learning i'm i haven't picked up any bad habits yet and i kind of have you know i've just been through the process of of getting the license so i know what's involved that's all fairly fresh in my memory 
And therefore that actually will help me hopefully to teach the next generation of pilots, you know, how to do it. Um, and at the same time, I'll obviously be gaining lots of hours and experience of flying around with the student because every hour as an instructor, you log it as the instructor in your logbook. And so does the student log it in theirs. So it's sort of, you know, it, it's a, it's a win-win. Um, no, at the moment um, I am basically after you get the, the commercial license, whether that be through the integrated route or the modular route, you tend to still need to do some hour building before you can do an instructor course. Um, you can't, you can't teach until you have 250 hours and the instructor course itself is um, 30 hours. So I basically needed to get up to 220 hours sort of under my own steam as it were, before I could do that instructor course. So um, I graduated with my CPL with about 138 hours. So you can do the maths. I've had to do a fair bit of hour building yeah. in between times, which have, which is actually, I mean, it's expensive. The helicopter costs the best part of 500 quid an hour, Wow! but it's been an amazing experience because it's probably the only time in my life, unless I happen to win the lottery, that I'm going to be able to fly around in a helicopter with my wife and my friends and my family mm. doing, you know, trips, going to places where I want to go. Because once I get into a job, I'm going to be going where the customer tells me to go. Mm. So what's an average day like for a commercial helicopter pilot? What kind of things are you doing apart from maybe flying around? Um, well, I mean, I, you'll have to ask me that one when I eventually get a job as a commercial helicopter pilot, because at the moment I've got the license, but I haven't got the job because I'm mm. waiting to become a flight instructor and then see what happens after that. But essentially, um, you know, my understanding of it is that it's like many jobs. You you turn up and you do some planning and some sort of organizing of what's what's going to happen over the course of that day. Certainly in the case of a flight instructor, for instance, you turn up maybe half seven in the morning at the at the uh, the airfield and, you know, you check a lot of paperwork. There's there's obviously a lot of um sort of things that have to be done in aviation there must be a lot of health and safety involved before you can even take off i'd imagine a hundred percent because it is a dangerous business and there are quite a lot of risks with it and the best way to manage the risk is to check things and check them twice and be very methodical and have a very clear system for making sure that you know, if something went wrong with the aircraft yesterday, it'll be written in the tech log so that the engineers know that they need to test it and you know not to fly it. You know, it's it's not like your car where you just grab your keys, run out the front door and jump in it and drive off. You know, we have to do what's called a check A, which is, you know, a sort of initial first flight of the day check of the aircraft, which basically means climbing all over it and undoing all the cowlings and having a really good detailed look at the engine and the gearbox and the rotor head and all, all the various bits of it, checking that all the lights work, all the instruments work properly. Um, there's no dents in it. There's not leaking oil out all over the floor, all that sort of stuff, because all these things normally are there for you to check because somebody has unfortunately had an incident or an accident before and the upshot of the review of the accident is well if we make sure that 
this, that, or the other is done every time from now on, that may prevent that same accident from happening again. So we take it all very seriously. And, you know, we, there's a lot of things to check. There's a lot of paperwork that needs to be signed from insurance points of view and mm. making sure that everything's fully legal and safe and, and well checked. But that's part of the territory. And, uh, you know, nobody really likes paperwork. I, I, <laughs> I'll challenge you to find a pilot who loves paperwork and all, all that sort of side of it. But it's worth it once you get, you know, once you get the, we say kick the tires and light the fires. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, which is a joke because we absolutely can't kick the tires and light the fires. We have to check <laughs> everything really carefully. So we sort of say it as a laugh. You know, we wish we could do that. Yeah. But when you do eventually get it started up and you're ready to go, I, I honestly think that the moment when you lift, you know, a ton and a half or two tons or however big your helicopter is into the air just by lifting your left hand, maybe half an inch mm. and that collective lever comes up and you start to see the grass or whatever that's in front of you go flat as the, you know, the pitch comes on the blades and it starts to create the downforce and, and you kind of lift effortless in, into the hover. It's, it is still the same excitement of look at this magic carpet now as a 33 year old, as it was when I was six sort of peering over the fence at that helicopter on, on our I think you made a really good point earlier when you were talking about uh, planes versus helicopters. Cause when you look at a plane, you think, yeah, yeah, that should, that should fly. Actually that, that works, you know, and even if something goes wrong, maybe you could glide, but with a helicopter, they just, it must feel weird being in control of a helicopter because, like you say, they just don't look like they should be able to fly. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, they're sort of majestic in one way, but a bit gangly in another, particularly when they're shut down and the blade is sort of drooping there. And, you know, you think that's an awful lot of cabin and helicopter versus not very much you know in the way of a fairly thin flexible flimsy looking set of <laughs> blades and you just kind of think yeah i'm not really too sure about that but that's that's partly the magic of it and yeah i mean airplanes um they do certainly look a, a bit more um you know kind of built to fly as it were Mm. um and a lot of people have the misconception that airplanes can glide and helicopters can't well it's not true um helicopters absolutely can glide we don't call it gliding we call it auto rotating um okay. and you know we practice it regularly it's a, forms a major part of the training and a major part of our six monthly and annual you know check flights with instructors to keep our license valid um and you know that they, they have different characteristics you know yeah when, when you glide an airplane you sort of i mean they all vary but roughly speaking you would you'd come down about one foot for every 12 feet you'd go forward whereas the helicopter it's more like you come down 12 feet for every one foot you go forward <laughs> <laughs> it's falling with style I think. yeah <laughs> it is it is a buzz light year falling with style absolutely that so you tend to in an airplane you're sort of looking for a field that may be a mile or a couple of miles off in the distance to, to glide into whereas in the helicopter you're looking through what we call a chin bubble the little window next to your feet and thinking oh yeah there's a football pitch down there that'll do <laughs> so uh, we spoke about some of the applications a helicopter pilot might be required, such as military. You've got probably police, um, lifeguard, uh, air ambulance, and obviously ferrying to um, sort of the oil rigs. Um, are there any other applications that um, 
helicopter pilots might be required in the UK. Also, is there much of a demand for helicopter pilots uh, currently? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you've mentioned many of the key ones there. There's obviously there's a, a huge operation in Aberdeen particularly, but there's also um, quite a lot of stuff going on in, in Norwich and um, up in Shetland of north various companies flying guys to oil rigs um there's a bit of a new side to the industry of servicing offshore wind turbine farms um helicopters are used to hover over the kind of the business bit of the turbine the, the box with all the machinery in it the nacelle and they lower um you know crew onto those who, who do oh, maintenance that on sounds them. a bit hairy jesus <laughs> <laughs> well it does sound a bit hairy but these turbines are so big that that you know that the nacelle part is is really quite large and actually mm. the blades of the turbine are quite a, a long way away from the helicopter at the other end and they they do slow them down or bring them to a complete oh, stop nice so it's a bit less <laughs> sketchy but yeah, I mean, you know, you're hovering several hundred feet up in the air over this thing and, you know, an out-of-ground effect hover, as that is, is the most sort of labour-intensive job for a helicopter. So it's quite difficult. So you've got, you've got offshore wind farms, you've got the oil industry. As you mentioned, you've got the police, um, HEMS or air ambulance. Um, there's things like the the lighthouse board use, use the helicopter up in Scotland and, and in England to, to access lighthouses, particularly ones that are you know, some of them have the heli deck on the top of the lighthouse wow. where they're really inaccessible. So that's that's quite an interesting one. Um, helicopters are used to ferry um, baby salmon around in Scotland. Um, they, they move them from salmon farm to, you know, other places using these special buckets with water in them. Um, helicopters are used to move and um, mount telegraph poles and pull new power lines into position um they're used a lot in america for servicing power lines they actually hover next to live you know fifty thousand volt cables and a guy will sit on a platform on the skid and the pilot will hover with inch precision next to Jesus. these wires and people will climb across onto the live don't ask me how they can do it without getting electrocuted it's something about earthing yourself or whatever but <laughs> i don't know it seems a bit sketchy to me yeah, there's some very brave people out there There are some very brave you maybe you should get one of those on this podcast um <laughs> but uh no there, there's actually quite a lot of jobs and i think i mean that the helicopter industry is a very small part of the aviation industry overall there are obviously you know thousands of airline pilots um and not as many helicopter pilots by any means but it's a lot of the industry is made up of of jobs which you know we've been referring to particularly through covid as being of national resilience you know covid or not we've still needed air ambulance helicopters search and rescue the police um you know all, all of that sort of stuff you know camera helicopters for tv companies um is is another one there's lots of roles that are done by helicopters that are needed all year round come rain or shine and you know therefore it's a, it's a small industry in comparison to the fixed wing world but it's a really really important one um and and i think that's one of the reasons why i find it so exciting because there's so much variety in the work that is available yeah certainly 
Um, for you, what do you think are some of the key uh, personality traits that a helicopter pilot would require uh, to really be successful in this industry? Well, that's a great question, and, and I'll, um, I'll probably be asked this in a job interview, and if I don't know the correct answer, I won't get the job. So this is quite a good dry <laughs> run for me. Thanks, chaps. Um, no pressure. <laughs> I I think there's quite a few things that are important. I think you need to be cool and calm under pressure. That's a key one for any kind of flying um, helicopter or fixed wing, but you need to be calm under pressure. You need to be quite methodical and organized, but particularly with helicopters, I think you need to have a little bit of creativity and an ability to think outside the box a bit because, you know, an airliner will take off from one air, massive airport and fly half around the world to another massive airport where there are air traffic control telling them exactly where to go, at what speed, at what altitude, when to turn. And the area is is sort of safe and clear because it's an airport. So it's all flat and there's no, no towers sticking up and there's no wires to worry about. And there's no other traffic because air traffic control have got control of the airspace. Whereas helicopters are often landing in random fields and people's back gardens and you know hovering in awkward positions next to lighthouses or lines of power lines and all that sort of stuff and you have to be able to do a sort of active risk assessment of the site that you're trying to get in and out of you know you might have a a customer in the back who's paid you to fly them from Battersea Heliport in London to their mate's garden in you know the Cotswolds or something and you know you've done as much preparation and planning as you can do beforehand by you know looking at google earth and maybe doing a ground recce or having a chat with another pilot mate who's been there before or something like that but essentially when you get there you've got to kind of work out what's the safest way of getting in and out of there and whether it's indeed even safe to do it at all and therefore that is a degree of judgment and creativity and sort of you know thinking on the on the hoof which which i think is important but you also need to be um, quite confident at being able to say no when a customer asks you to do something which you think is going to endanger you or or their life or you know people on the ground's lives. So, you know that there have been um, you know fairly notable, fairly recent incidents of of helicopter accidents where there there may have been a, a bit of pressure on the pilot to fly when the weather wasn't you know really safe mm. to do so, and that is. A, absolutely tragic but you can see how that sort of pressure commercial pressure um sometimes we refer to it as get their itis may mm. creep in um so so being able to deal with that um you know being a good people person dealing with you know sometimes you're dealing with customers or you're, you know in my case when i become a flight instructor i'll be dealing with students i'll be dealing with other flight instructor colleagues who are more senior than me um, you know, if you're flying to the oil rigs, you're always multi-crew. There's always two pilots. So there'll be an experienced captain and there'll be a co-pilot. And you have to be able to work in a, you know, a collaborative environment where there's trust and respect and good communication between each other. So, you know, there's lots of facets to it in terms of different skills. And again, that's one of the things that appeals about it because, you know, you're not, you know, rubber stamping envelopes or whatever you're you know you're kind of doing something that is dynamic and you know every day is different the weather's always different the you know the airspace is different the, the passengers are different the other person that you're flying with is different or maybe you're flying on your own as a single pilot and therefore 
you know there's always something new to think about and to kind of get your head around and it's you try and do the best you can each time this was obviously a childhood dream of yours um was there ever a moment you thought what have i done here why am i doing this oh there's been many of those mostly when i was you know half past 10 at night several months in you know trying to study for the the uh, air transport pilot license exams um which of which there were 14 at the time that i did them there's 13 now because <laughs> they've amalgamated two of them together but um you know they were really really tough there's a huge amount of information i've got the folders behind me in my office here they're you know three large lever arch folders of notes that i've handwritten for the for the 14 subjects and you know, you've got to get decent marks in the exams. It's high pressure because you've got to get them all done in a, you know, you have to finish all, all 14 of them within, um, I think it's 18 months of starting. You only get a certain number of sittings. You only get a certain number of attempts at each exam. I was very lucky that I passed all of them on the first go um, with a, a decent average score, but it's high pressure and it's stressful. So there was many times that I questioned my decision. You know, I left a, a job I loved at the BBC that was, it wasn't easy and it was shift work. I was often up at four o'clock in the morning. So there was plenty of times when I grumbled about that as well, but you know, it was, you know, I was doing it and I was doing all right at it. And then I thought, you know, why have I done this? But every time I thought that I would look at the photograph of the, the Bolco 105 up on my wall here in the office and you know or go down the airfield and have a look at a helicopter or even just hang my head out the window every time one flew past and i think to myself yeah this is why you're doing it rory because it's epic and it'll be worth it and although i'm you know i'm still very early days in this in this journey you know to you know obviously i hope that at some point in the future i'll get a a job on search and search and rescue or air ambulance or the police or working on the lighthouses or something like that that would be awesome um, I'm excited about becoming an instructor, but I know that there are plenty more challenges to come. But you have to, I think you have to have the mindset, I guess, in answer to your previous questions about things that you you need to have. You need to have a fairly resilient attitude towards things that are challenging and a bit tricky and a bit kind of overwhelming when you first start and just be able to keep going, keep focused on the end goal and sort of keep chipping away at it. And, you know, you will you will sort of achieve it if you can keep doing that amazing well thank you so much for coming on rory and telling us all about your journey so far wish you the best of luck with the training and um yeah look forward to seeing you up in the sky well thank you very much both of you um if i may if anyone's interested in um sort of seeing for themselves what i've been up to um there are various videos on my rory on air youtube channel that yeah kind please of, plug away plug that you know, in your instagram yeah um whatever their titles are yeah no i'll i'll share those because this you know it's quite a it gives people a bit of a flavor of what it's like but um no it's been a real pleasure to be on the podcast with you both thank you amazing thank you Roy.